Lord, we are truly privileged to have a song like this recorded for us. Lord, especially at the, the end of your story of providence and in the choosing of the king, um, a king after your own heart, and your way of raising him up to sit on the throne and to establish the kingdom in Israel. And Lord, even, even after the, the times of struggle and the sin in his life and the, the rebellion of his sons, Lord, he is able to think back and to reflect and to consider what you have been doing, how you've been doing it, and your faithfulness to him through the years. And Lord, I ask that this morning that we would not only see um, how you have been faithful to David, but to see that as a mirror of how you have been faithful to your son, Jesus Christ, but then, Lord, even through him, to how you have been faithful to us. And we are so privileged, Lord, to be your children. Strengthen us, equip us, help us, Lord, to be uh, molded and shaped, to be like your son, and to be, uh, to be rested and settled in the gospel that he proclaims and that he died for, and Lord, that he came to see permeate this world. Strengthen us now, we ask in your blessed name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What's interesting about the, the, book, of the, song, uh, the, the say, book of the Samuel is that it begins with a song, Hannah's song, and ends with David's song. And there are, in a sense, bookends to the whole of the story. And I just want to take a moment to go back to Hannah's song, which is in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And Hannah was the, the mother of Samuel, and uh, God, uh, through her, um, established this song. And at the end of this song, this is what she says. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And what you have to remember is that when Hannah is singing this song, it's just come out of a time in the context there where there was no king in Israel. It was a mess. It was a literally royal mess. No leadership, hardly any word of God present. It was rare. And yet, in her song, she looked forward in hope of what God was going to do. So there's a prophetical side to her song that is fulfilled through the story of First and Second Samuel. But now... We come to another song, the song of David, that looks back over the years and reflects on God's faithfulness to keep his word. And of course, that song is here. It's what we have read in 2 Samuel 22. Now, as you've noted, this is a long psalm, um, and uh, you're probably thankful that you didn't have to get up here and read it, um, although there weren't lots of strange names in there. But there's a lot of figurative language. There's a lot of descriptions about who God is. 
And it would require a lot more time for us to deal with all those expressions and all those statements. But please understand, songs like this were not written to be analyzed in detail. It's just like we sang a number of hymns today, full, packed with great theology. And we need to pause and, and take time to read each stanza of those songs on occasion, but we sing them as kind of like stories of the gospel. And we don't just pause every time and analyze everything. And so there's a sense in which psalms need to be felt. And we have a song here, and I'm, I'm interchanging the word song and psalms for a reason. There's, there's a need for us to feel what's going on. David is expressing his heart through song, through poetry. And so it's not just a record of historical events. It is a song that is full of his expression about his thankfulness to God. Not only is it a long psalm, it is also an important psalm of David. So important that the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, chose to include this song, this psalm, twice. You'll actually find this psalm as Psalm 18. And the verse references will be a little different because the title is not included in the verses in the Psalms. But it is the same song that the people then of God elevated and saw as incredibly important that they would then sing it as a congregation. So friends, it's not just part of Israel's history book, this is also part of Israel's hymn book. And they sang it, and this morning we are going to look at it and allow it as best we can to, to, to mold us and to, to, to help us see what God is doing, not only in history, but even in our lives today. But this is also a song that looks back over a long saga of David's salvation. When the Lord delivered him, that's David, from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. That's what the first verse tells us. And this is the, you might want to say, the, the driving instructions for us as we go through this psalm. This is the, the, the focal point or the, the theme. This is the lens through which we view this psalm. It is a psalm that is created and established when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And yet I think as the writer of First and Second Samuel puts it into the account, he wants us not only to take in the era of the Philistines where David was a mighty warrior, but even the more recent challenges that he faced, that the, the words and the expressions can apply to also. And so this morning, the, the, the proposition is very, very simple, but I'm going to flesh it out a little bit, and the proposition simply is a reflection of the title, A Song of Praise for God's Deliverance. And at the outset, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of this psalm, because I think sometimes we can come to a long psalm like this, and it's just like, it's just a bunch of words, and we don't know how to kind of meander through it. So we want to start with a roadmap, which will ultimately be the structure of the sermon, but it'll help you understand where we're going. And there's going to be, first of all, this top and tail. It begins with praise. And it ends with praise. 
And in between those top and tails of, of praise, those bookends of praise, we have these movements in this song. The first movement has to do with deliverance, how God delivered David. The second movement is this movement of righteousness. And we're actually going to be a little shocked as to what David says about righteousness in this psalm. And then it moves into kingdom, because this is a reflection then of of what God ultimately did through David as king in establishing his kingdom. God raised David up, he delivered him, he, you can say, established him in righteousness, but he also was able to work through David as king to establish his kingdom. So there's a, there's a flow to what's going on here, but there's a, there's a reflection, and there's actually a, a central part of this righteousness that becomes part of our consideration this morning. But then for us, as we consider how then does this apply to us, or what's our personal aim, and I would just challenge, uh, challenge you to consider just the ways that God has been at work in your life, and then how would you praise him for his faithfulness to you? What would that look like? I mean, David's looking back. He's reflecting. And so it's going to teach us what praise looks like. It's also going to teach us why we praise. And it's also going to teach us who Christ is, the object of our praise ultimately. So let's jump in at this top, this first part that is just simply the beginning of his praise. This psalm begins with an explosion of praise that comes out rapid fire to God. Just listen as I, as I just rattle it off. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So it's just rapid fire. It's just knocking it out there. Here are all these descriptions about who God is, and he's praising him for who he is, but he's also calling out to him. So what's the point of all this? David is seeking to give God praise with everything that he can. He's unable to express the the depth of, of his gratitude and praise, and so he can't say enough, so he just starts and continues to just throw accolades to God. It's kind of like a husband looking to a wife or a young man looking to get married. And he's saying, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're wise, you're special, you're, you're to, be, to, to be adored. And he just starts throwing all these adjectives because he wants to express the joy that is in his heart. There's a sense of that going on here. I remember when... Um, the times I've been in Bolivia and Ukraine, especially over the past year, um, I, I ran into this. I'm in the middle of Bolivia, and I'm, I'm talking to people. They're asking me questions in Spanish, and I know uh, enough to kind of get a sense of, of what I should be saying, but, but I draw a blank, and I can't even remember the Spanish word for yes. 
And so what comes out of my mouth isn't yes. You know what it is? Duh. (laughs) At that moment, I know I'm not supposed to be using English, but I'm supposed to be using another language, and so I use Russian. And then when I'm in Ukraine... I'm speaking to the guys there, and I want to say yes or something. I think it was, uh, um, uh, I think, yeah, it was, it was like thank you. Uh, and I couldn't remember what that was in Ukrainian or even in Russian. And so I said, um, I said, uh, muchos gracias, you know. <laughs> and I, I was like, I know I couldn't say anything in English, and so I, I, have, to, I have to say something, and, and maybe this will work. <laughs> it was the best that I could offer at that moment. It was insufficient. It doesn't complete the expression of my heart to these guys, but it was the best that I could offer at that moment. See, this is what's going on with David. David is wanting to praise God as he reflects over his life. And he throws all these descriptions and adjectives out. Why? Because he wants God to know how much he is worthy of this praise, but even the praise that he's offering, he feels is insufficient for who God is and what he's done. And so he gives him what he can. (laughs) He throws it out there. Uh, Probably not in Russian, probably not in Spanish, but he gives it out there. Now, the question for us is this. What motivates or fuels David to praise. It's worth asking the question. You see, praise isn't just something you conjure up. There are probably a lot of churches across America this morning, when they gathered and the worship leader came out, he's like, all right, everyone, let's clap together. Let's come on, let's get our praises. Come on, let's get our praises. As if praise is something you can just motor into. Now, our office is over the Charles Schwab building. If you've ever been there, you don't know where that is. It's a fountain in front of it. But there's like it's an office complex, and we have one of the offices, and there's a, an office uh, two doors down from us. And on occasion, they'll have a group of people in there, and they have this big kind of, a, um, I guess, big table there, um, conference table. But every once in a while, there's a group of people in there, and they are loud, and they're making lots of noise. And what they're ultimately doing is that they are, they're just kind of gathering, almost like, like a coach with his players. You know, they're going, rah, 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 rah. And I think it's a sales team thing, you know? You know, you know we can do it. Yes, we can. We can do it. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know? And I remember it just reminded me, growing up in England, when I played soccer, um, we would do this cheer. When I came to the States, um, I kind of began it here in the high school, and it was actually kind of strange for a, a U.S. soccer team to do it. If you're from England, you know this, but um, it was oggy, 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 and then they would respond, oi, 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 and they do oggy, 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 oi, oi, and Matt knows exactly what's going on. I would say oggy, and he would say oggy, and I'd say oggy, oggy, you know, oggy, 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 oi, oi, oi. It's really, really simple, but it was some way to get the team fired up. And also, you, as you're running around the field, you're trying to intimidate the team, you're saying it, you know? And, and there's a sense in which, friends, that, that praise can be viewed somewhat like a pep rally. That, that our goal is somehow to, to drum ourselves into praise out of nothingness except emotion, and that it's time to praise, whatever that might be or look like. But I would, I want to, just expressed to you that, that David's 
praise flows out of some things that are substantial. And that's what we're going to find as we go through here. This deliverance, this righteousness, and this this idea of kingdom are all part of the fuel of his praise. So praise is is the result of something. I was, you know, asked the question, you know, are we doing things backwards when it comes to church? Should we sing more after we hear the word of God? So that we're fueled with the word of God and and we want to sing. We don't just want to have a song at the end of the service just to kind of tack it on there. There's a sense in which we want to sing in celebration or even sometimes in in a somberness based on what the text has been saying because it fuels how we praise. So let's take our time now to think through the, the, the different aspects that fuel his praise. These three words, I've mentioned them a number of times, you'll see them again. Number one, the power of God's deliverance. The power of God's deliverance. What we're going to find here in verses 5 to 20 is a movement from distress um, to deliverance. It's going to move from from David crying out and ultimately for for God to to deliver David and to delight in David. That's how it is described. So let's think first of all about David's distress and cry. David remembers the times in his life when he was in distress. And these were not shadows of death. These were um, times of, of, of being gripped by death and God coming and actually delivering him from those particular moments. And notice how he describes it, verse 5. For the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, that's the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. If you don't like a horror movie, this is kind of what's going on. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's happening here to David as he's seeking to live his life. So what does someone do when they are so entangled with the cords of Sheol pulling you in? What are we to do when death confronts us or encompasses us? We cry out to God. And that's what David did. Look at verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ear. Now, David, as he's reflecting about his times of distress, I'm sure was thinking about a number of things. I'm sure he was thinking about those times when he constantly went out to battle the Philistines. Maybe he begins by thinking about, you know, standing up against Goliath. Now, we certainly saw that David was a man of faith during that point in time, but that doesn't mean that Goliath wasn't daunting. But then he continued to go out into battle against the Philistines, the Philistines. Just remember, the Philistines... We're like that cat that just came back and came back and came back. They were just always there. And then there were times in David's life when he was, even as a successful warrior, being sought and pursued by King Saul. And he's on the run. And that's all part of the story of 1 Samuel. And of course, we can also say that David was in a time of distress when his, his son Absalom was pursuing him, trying to... Um, take the throne away from him. 
Those are just a few to highlight, but there's more that we could talk about even. But time and time again, David was desperate, and he called upon the Lord, and God heard his voice, and David's cry came to his ears. And friends, that is good news, that in times of distress, God hears the cries of his children. He hears the the voices and the distress that are brought to him to give him him, uh, the opportunity, in a sense, to say, I'm paying attention. I hear what is going on. And so we have a God that we can trust is a God who not only hears our cries for deliverance, but also um, who can deliver as he has promised he would deliver us. And now, as David prays for deliverance, God hears and he responds, but not in the way that you might expect. What we have next is not like, okay, and then David was delivered. What we have now is a whole bunch of verses that highlight something about God. Before we see anything else about God, we see that God is angry. Notice what it says. Notice what it says there in verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Why? Because he, that's God, was angry. So we've seen this this time of, of distress and David crying out, but now we're seeing God's power on display from verse 8 all the way down through verse 16. We see again, rapid fire, rapid fire. This is a way that David is trying to to show us that God moves the universe to answer the prayers of his servants. And if you wanted to communicate that, what would you say? This is how you'd do it. It's rapid fire description of God. Again, verse 8, then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens, and the heavens came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew and was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So that's a bunch of figurative language there, just showing how powerful God is. And there's enough of the language in there that that seems to indicate that what, what David is doing is he's using the language of the Exodus to describe the power of God. And to say, here is the same God who has worked in the Exodus, but now is at work and has been at work in my life. Let's just highlight this. I really can break it down into four little sections here. Number one, he gets angry for us, verses 8 and 9, to the point that the earth and the heavens rock and tremble and quake. The point here is that he's ready to act for us. Secondly, he comes down. To us. When God's servants cry out to God, He not only hears, He not only gets angry, but He comes down. There's a sense in which He is now, He's now condescending to us where we are. Thirdly, He acts. 
on behalf of us, bringing coals of fire that flame forth from him. These are coals of anger directed against those who are distressing David. So he comes as a storm against them, thundering heaven with his voice. He comes as a warrior against them, sending arrows. And so he's acting on our behalf against those enemies. And then number four, he rebukes them because of us. See, David had cried out to God, and God had heard him. And before David tells us what God did, he wants us to see that God is powerful, that that, that he is actively present with his servants. Now hear this, friends. That is so important. To recognize that God is not some distant God to stay away, and he really doesn't care about the details of people's lives. He's just kind of a general God that's out there. No, God is a God who comes down. He descends. He is active with his people. And friends, that, that brings comfort to us. That God is aware, he knows, but he's also with us. So he may be a God who sits on his throne in heaven, but he is also a God who descends on the wings of the wind, it says, to answer our cries for deliverance. It's one thing to hear, it's another thing to act. We take comfort in the fact that God hears, but it's also good to know that God acts for us on behalf of us, and because of us, that he comes down to us. Now, we live in a two-story home. Some of you have been to our house. And uh, one of the problems that we have in our home is communication, which, of course, is a very loaded statement, right? But on a practical level, one of the problems that we have is if I or my wife is in the kitchen and you know, we're cooking up food, the, 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 um, the fan is on over the stove, the dishwasher might be on, there's things being fried or something like that, and, you know, someone in the household yells down, hey, you know, what time's dinner going to be? The person in the kitchen can't hear a thing. There's all this noise, all right, and so the person in the kitchen is trying to yell upstairs, like, hey, I need, you know, time. it's almost time for dinner, whatever it might be, you know, they can hear, but you walk back into the kitchen, you can't hear anything that's happening or being said upstairs. There's a sense in which in order to actually effectively communicate, you have to come down. Now, of course, that illustration totally falls apart when we text instead, right? Which is today's lazy version of actually solving that problem, right? But there's a sense in which I'm trying to get the the, the sense of understanding here that, that in all the noise of our distress, even when God's people cry out to him, he descends, he comes down. Now, I'm not talking about physically, I'm, not, I'm just talking about in the sense in which the Holy Spirit is already at work, he's already with us, but he, he, he condescends to us, and he's done that in the person of his Son, and now is continuing to do that by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word. This is just beautiful, wonderful truth, but David just pauses in the midst of, of answering how God actually took care of him in his time of distress by saying, this is the God who is going to deliver me. Now let me tell you what he's done. God's deliverance now in his delight. 
God's deliverance and his delight. Notice how God acts toward his servant in distress. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out in a broad place and rescued me. Okay, just going back. Sent me, took me, drew me, rescued me was supported me, brought me, rescued me. These are all incredible words that help us understand that God is at work in David here, bringing deliverance, taking care of him as his king. And as I mentioned, David has been using this language that flows out of the language of the Exodus. And it also says, because he delighted in me. Now, friends, that's a, an interesting statement. It's going to be even more interesting as we continue to read in the psalm here. But just, just as God delighted in imperfect Israel in the wilderness, so he takes delight in his imperfect Savior and King. So David records for us his praise because God, the powerful, mighty God of Israel, heard his cries of distress and came down to him, rescued him, supported him, freed him. There's the expression there. The, the, he brought me out into a broad place. In other words, I'm liberating you. You've read the stories of David's struggles. He was hated, hunted, and haunted by Saul. He was pushed from pillar to post, from palace to cave, and he was driven to make quick decisions in desperation. But it's one thing to read that. David doesn't want you just to read it. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to get the sense of this God who has delivered him. And that's why he's moving from pen to parchment to song. And when we sing and when we read poetry, we, we sing it, we feel it. David, David's feeling what he's saying and he wants those who are going to read this and who are going to sing it to feel it along with him. And that's why this became included in the hymn book. And friends, there's a sense in which we need to be able to look back at the times of our deliverance. Even as was talked about here from Ephesians 4, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you get to that, but God. And you begin, you begin to weep as you say, but God. You begin to, to feel what's going on in that text. You begin to feel the deliverance and the, 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 the wonder of it. Because God is a God who delivers, and he delivers those whom he delights in. Those are his chosen children. It's a wonderful statement. It's also puzzling to some degree, especially as we continue to read on. So we've seen the power of God's deliverance that is fueling his praise. Secondly, now, the promise of God's righteousness. David praises God for this deliverance, but now he praises God for his, that is David's, righteousness. Notice what it says in verse 25. You might recoil at this. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the 
cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. What's your initial response to that? Who's writing this psalm? It's David. And he's saying, God has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness. And you're saying, are you reading the same book I'm reading? How in the world can David claim that? Well, he is. And he's going to show us how he can claim that. He's talking about his own righteousness. I mean, again, how can David say that? He committed adultery. He committed murder. He was a man who lied and deceived during that whole season. But notice verse 21 and 25 are very similar in language. They're almost like bookends, again, to, uh, to some things that David wants to say. And so we, we really want to land the plane here in verses 22, 23, and 24 to see what David is actually saying. He says, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. In verse 25, almost a repetition of verse 21, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to my cleanness in his sight. Now what is going on there? Because you're like, wait a second, David, you can't be saying this stuff. This isn't true. Thankfully, it is true. Because David is not saying that he's perfect. What David is saying here is a general claim of his loyalty to God. Yes, he has been sinful. There have been times of sin. There's been times of great sin in his life. But unlike Saul, who turned his back from serving the Lord, when David sinned, he listened to the voice of God through the prophet Nathan. And David did not turn his back on God. What did David do? He repented of his sin. You can read Psalm 51 describes what happened in his heart and, and it was a, just a wonderful picture of repentance. And friends, this is, this is helpful for us. Because we might say, we've, we've, we've blown that righteousness thing. Yes, we've embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we've blown that righteousness thing because we've, we've committed sin, we've committed maybe a horrible big sin. And it is what it is. But friends, there's a sense in which we, as God's children, can be blameless in his sight, even though we have committed those sins. And that's what David is getting at here. He was saying, I was blameless before him. The word blameless comes from a Hebrew word that has the idea of wholeness, completeness, integrity. He knows his sinful tendencies. He knows the sins that he's committed, but he also knows God and his word. He's been sinful, but he has also been humble and repentant. And so David is saying to his, that his righteousness is like a, a weather vane, beaten by the elements of the world, but pointing in the right direction. And friends, that's helpful again. He is not pointing to life's perfection, but to life's direction. And friends, again, this is good news for us. Who here this morning can say that they have reached perfection? I'm still looking around. All right. Who here can say that they are righteous on their own, 
in their standing before God. <laughs> Again, looking around, you're not going to see a hand raised. No, we're all beaten and afflicted people who can, with God's help, point our hearts in the direction of God through his word and his spirit. We can be faithful and wholehearted, yet imperfect and struggling servants of God who stand secure in the righteousness of God, who delight in the rescuing power and safety of God. So what David is saying is a reflection of our own sanctification. We have, by virtue of the cross, been placed in a position where God declares us righteous. That does not change. Now, because of that righteousness, we seek to be what God says we already are. We live out of that righteousness as we pursue and grow toward practically being like Christ. So these were not words boasting of self-righteousness, but professions of loyalty and overall obedience understanding that repentance was necessary and a reflection of the reality of a, of a faith in his God. So David isn't claiming some self-righteousness at all, but a righteousness that can only come from God himself. Now, friends, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Just think about what, what he has described. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But in 1 Timothy 1.15, what does Paul say? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, what? Of whom I am chief or of whom I am the foremost. He's saying, I'm a sinner and yet I've kept the faith. <laughs> That's us, right? We could be sinners who are pursuing Christ. We recognize that. The Apostle Peter also denied Jesus three times, but later after the resurrection told Jesus that he loved him three times. Again, there's this, there's this tension, but there's this beauty because this is the reality of where we are. And if we ever come to the place where we're like, no, no, you have to toe the line, you have to measure up, we have just moved away from the gospel into legalism. And that's not a place that we want to be at all. And so that is David's righteousness but this moves on then into God's righteousness because it's God's righteousness that was the, the means or the basis of David's righteousness. And notice we're told, first of all, how God's righteousness deals with the humble and the haughty. Verse 26 through 28. With the merciful you, that's God, show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself tortuous. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? You save humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God knows what he's doing. And his righteousness, his sovereign righteousness is applying discipline, consequence, punishment based on people's humility or their haughtiness to him as God. So hopefully you caught the comparison there. Humility 
and pride. Now, sadly, the opposite of what David is saying here is also true. When people turn away from God as Lord and also reject his word, why should they expect rescue? Or those who, in times of sinfulness and distress, turn to God seeking to obey his word are those who can expect his rescue, his strength, his wisdom, and his blessing. David was committed to God even through his sinfulness. That's why in Psalm 51, as he's repenting, and he's reflecting on his his time of repentance, he says this, verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This isn't just God, just forgive me of my sin. No, this is wash me thoroughly from my sin. I want it removed. I want it to disappear. Verse seven, Purge me with hyssop. This is a spiritual uh, expression here. And I shall be clean. This is the the kind of description that was used um, in the context of uh, sacrificial worship. Going into the temple, using the hyssop, purging, making something clean, holy. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This was his heart. This was his longing. So it wasn't just kind of an assumed righteousness that, hey, it doesn't matter what's happening because I know that I'm righteous. He's still, even his repentance, wanting to be cleansed. A reflection of a heart that genuinely loves God. But others that are only committed to God temporarily to get themselves out of the pit that they have dug. They only look to God for relief from their immediate crisis. Dale Davis describes, this, describes it this way. They do not seek God, but a bomb shelter. They, just want, to, they want protection from the bombs that God may throw. And friends, that's not, that's not the orientation of David's heart at all. He's genuine in his repentance. But his righteousness, he says, comes from God himself. But this righteousness that comes to the humble rather than the haughty comes to David. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. Now, these are all descriptions of freedom. I can, I, can, I can see clearly now because your righteousness has been applied to me. I can move swiftly now because of what you have done for me. And then this righteousness is also reinforced. Where are we at here? Yeah, it's reinforced. Look at verse 31. This God, just know what he's saying. This God, pay attention, that's what he's saying. This God, his way is what? Perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. There's a sense in which in this song, he's moving to a crescendo in this stanza. If this were a chorus, it may have been repeated. I don't know. It's a powerful statement in light of what David has been saying. God's ways are perfect. God's word is proven true. God's righteousness is a shield of refuge. And friends, that is true for us too. It's Christ's righteousness that clothes us, that protects us, that is the means of our identity in Christ. It's because of his righteousness. 
So we move from this, this power of deliverance, this promise of righteousness, now to what I'm calling the progression of his kingdom. He's, he's coming to God in praise because of the ways that God has chosen to use him as king in the unfolding and the establishing of God's kingdom on the earth. I mean, what a privilege. But how do you go about it? Well, verses 5 through 20 give us a, a barrage of descriptions about God, and there's something very similar going on here. Back then, they were talking about deliverance. Here, he's talking about dominion. This is God at work in the progression of his kingdom. So notice, first of all, what, what God has already done, in particular for David. Verse 34, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can, can bend a bow of bronze. He, he, he has given me the shield of our salvation and your gentleness made me great. You have a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. In all of it, God has proven himself to be the one true God. He's proven himself to be a true rock and David's strong refuge. Verse 32, for God is who is God but the Lord and who is the rock except our God. This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. And so all these descriptions now of what God has done are given to us to, just to give us this barrage of understanding of how God has, uh, has already been at work in David's life. It was God who strengthened and prepared David for conquest and battle. But now he moves into just considering what David accomplished with God's help. Again, we see this rapid fire nature of God's accomplishments through David. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, verse 39. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. And David here is quick to give God the credit for his success. There's a, a rightness in David's mingling of I and you that we're going to see here. Look at verse 40. For you equip me with strength for battle. For you made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You see this, here, here's what I have done, but God, this is what you have done, and here's what you have done, and so this is ultimately what I have done. He's saying, I have been your servant, but you are the one who's actually been doing this. So with God's help, David pursued, destroyed, consumed, thrust them through, beat and crushed his enemies. And Davis wants, us to, wants to be very, very clear. All that he's been able to do has been done with God's help and power. You equipped me with strength for battle. You made those enemies sink and turn their backs. And then we see the expansion of the king's reign. The main body of David's song ends here with a description of the outcome of all of this. 
God's king will be one before whom every knee will bow. His kingdom is an international kingdom. Verse 44 through 46. You delivered me from strife with my people. Talk about Israel. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. It's quite a picture of, a, of the progression of the kingdom. David sitting on his throne, establishing the kingdom now, has a reputation. But that reputation isn't David. That comes from God. God's the one who's been at work, and he is the one who is not only dealing with Israel, but he's also dealing with the nations. This is an amazing thing, what God has done. This is all fuel to burst forth in praise again, deliverance from enemies, righteousness uh, or, or righteous before or because of God, ruling as God's servant because of God's strength. What a privilege, what a God he gets to serve. Of course, this is a, an incredible picture of David's rule and reign. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would come. For Jesus is the son of David who does everything that David, who is everything that David failed to be. Just think through this now. Like David, he was threatened with destruction. That led him to the cross. It wasn't just that Jesus had to die. He had to die a sacrificial death. Like David, he called upon God the Father in his distress. And God rescued his son from his strong enemy, Satan, by raising him from the dead. And he is the perfectly righteous, blameless, pure one. He is the Lord who rules now with all authority from heaven. Friends, hear this. He rules all nations, and all nations will one day come and bow their knee before him. Some will bow the knee because they must. <laughs> because they must. They will, they will have rejected him as king. They will have rejected his word as truth, and they will be responsible and accountable for their rebellion. And they will be punished and dealt with according to how they responded to him. Others, however, will bow the knee because they want to. They come and they worship Christ the King because they desire to, because it is their delight to, and they will be embraced because they've humbled themselves. They've listened to the words of the King. They've listened to um, the Word of God that describes the King. And they've embraced it as truth. And they are, of course, welcomed into God's kingdom. And friends, this is all that fuels this praise. Deliverance. This righteousness. And this being used by God to establish his kingdom. Wow, what a story. And so once again, he bursts forth into praise. 
This is the tale. Notice once again the celebration, the adoration, and the joy that are described in these few verses here. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of, from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Then verse 50, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Is he talking about the this he's just talked about or is he talking about the this that he's about to say? And I think there's a sense of both. Verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David is praising God because of his steadfast love, his hesed love, his covenant love, a love which fuels David's deliverance, his righteousness, and his accomplishments. But, but the, the, there's something that we need to ask ourselves here, even as we, we just kind of come to the end of, of, of this, uh, this, this song at this point. We can also be praising God. If you're a child of God, he has delivered you. It's a different story than David's story, but it's still God's deliverance by virtue of the gospel. He has, secondly, clothed you with his righteousness. And friends, that's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice over. Your righteousness is not dependent on you. He still wants you to pursue living a life for his glory, but there are going to be times of sin, but that doesn't undo your righteousness before God because it's Christ's righteousness that clothes us. And thirdly, he has commissioned us to serve him. It looks different than what David was doing, but it certainly is a commission that he's given to all of his followers. But there's something far more going on than David singing about himself, or even the application it is to us, there's something that God, in the, the, the providence and the breathing out of his word that he wants us to see, and that is Christ that comes out of this text that this is pointing to. And I want to take just a few moments here as we bring things to a close to notice how Christ is brought out of this text. It says right at the end of this, as, as almost like the punchline for the, for the whole of this, this song, Right at the end, it talks about to David and his offspring forever. Now this expression, offspring, is a singular collective. It can be talking about a group of people or it can be talking about one person. And so there's a sense in which this is true for all of his descendants, but there is one descendant in particular that is the descendant or the offspring par excellence. And his name is is Christ. He is the offspring of David. And so this is pointing us then to Christ. This is moving us from, from this particular story, reflecting over First and Second Samuel and saying, there's a greater David, and his name is Christ. He is the offspring of David. And we see that fleshed out in other places in Scripture. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, the song was so important to God and the people of God, they included it in the Psalter, the book of the Psalms. And, and so this, this song takes us to Christ 
because you see this song quoted in the New Testament. And in particular, you see it quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 15 and verse 9. And what Paul is doing as he's using this passage of Scripture is he's arguing for the fact that Jesus Christ didn't just come to be the Messiah of Israel. He also came to the Gentiles. And it's the first Old Testament text that he turns to and he quotes to make his point, to prove his point. And just turn, if you want, to Romans 15 and verses 7 and following. The key verse is verse 9, but hear what Paul says. Romans 15, 7 and following. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God's truthfulness. Sorry, for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Israel, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the, what? Gentiles might glorify God for his Mercy. Now, I just want you to note this, that the melodic line of Romans is actually the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's just one of those things, the theme of Romans. And notice what he says here, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. There it is. That's there from, from verse, what, 50 of 2 Samuel 22. He pulls in there, and he's saying, this, this one, Christ, is the one that's being talked about there. He has come to be the Savior of these Gentiles. Again, he said, verse 10 now of Romans 15, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Well, who is Jesse's son? David. And who is this root of Jesse? Christ. You see, it's all working together. From this particular song, we recognize that even the Apostle Paul sees that this is pointing not just to David, but to Christ himself. But there's something else. Just simply the, the, one of the dominant themes, especially in the praises of David on the top and tail, is this, this theme that my God is my rock. He is my rock. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my rock. My God is my rock. Interesting, verse 32. Who is the rock? Except your God. There's no other rock that is like this rock. Verse 49. The Lord lives and is my rock. Verse 49 again. My, my God, my, my rock. And the description of, of God and Christ uh, as a rock, has three basic meanings. A place of shelter, in particular in the, in the desert when it's hot and the sun is beaming down, you, you go and you sit on the other side of the rock to, 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 to find refuge from, from the, the, the sun and you, you enjoy the shade. It's a place of, of refuge from people. So it's, it's talked about as being a kind of a, the, the ability to hide in these rocks and crags and that's what David did when he was in the wilderness. It's also described as a, as a firm foundation. And this is who Jesus is also. And so all these pictures point to Christ, who is our shelter, our refuge, and our firm foundation. The great hymn writer in the 1700s was Augustus Toplady, and he captured this theme in his well-known song, Rock of Ages. 
Um, top lady was traveling in the country when a storm came upon him, and he, he was forced to take shelter in the cleft of a great rock. And just thinking about his situation, he thought about it in a spiritual way and, and began to think through some of the lines here. And he happened to see a, a playing card on the ground and was able to jot these, these lines down in this playing card, which still exists today, by the way. Um, and, and here's what he, what he wrote. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Friends, it is his death on the cross that welcomes us all to take refuge in him. I'm sorry I didn't put those up there. Now, I just want to leave you with three concluding thoughts. Number one, consider why you praise. There's a reason why our song leaders don't stand up and say, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a reason why we begin by one of our elders or someone else coming up and reading scripture to get ourselves oriented, to focus on what it is that we need to do in a corporate sense. And friends, let me just encourage you, there's a reason why we start at 10. It's not because we just wanna start at 10, it's because we wanna begin by a call to worship. We wanna begin by opening up the scriptures to, to, to pause and to remember and to be reflective and to think about why we're praising God. So why do you praise? Secondly, how do you praise? How do you go about doing it? Is this something that you, you do kind of grudgingly? Are you afraid that people will hear your voice? Um, is there freedom to be expressive? Um, there, there's, there's, there's ways that we can praise. Some people like to clap, and some people aren't sure whether they should clap, or whether they can clap, or whether they should join in the clapping. Some people just want to stand and praise God reflectively, just maybe with their eyes closed, just kind of looking up. Some people might want to raise a hand or something like that. Now, you're doing none of this to bring attention to yourself. But you simply want to praise him in a, in, a, in a manner that fits who God is. And then, of course, whom do you praise? And our contention here is the God of the Bible, Christ, who is the Son of God, who, who is the one that we bow down to, who is our King. We praise him. What a song. What a praise. What a lesson, what a, what a picture. May it fuel us not only to live for him, but also consider what our song would be. How has he delivered you? How has he made you righteous? And what has he commissioned you to? And how has he been at work through all of those things? Lord, help us today. We are in awe of all that David has laid out for us here. and Help us, Lord, not to simply walk away without considering the importance of praise. But praise, Lord, that is fueled by your work in us and through us for your glory.
Lord, may we be a people who not only love you, but love to praise you. Whether that be in song, whether that be in poetry, whether that be in times of prayer. Lord, would we give you all that we are? Even, Lord, that it would seem insufficient. Give you what we can for your glory. Because you're worthy. And we are blessed. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. In your name, amen.